Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Jim Leach, Director of External Affairs at the Santa Margarita Water District, and Charlie Wilson, CEO and Executive Director at the Southern California Water Coalition. Jim, Charlie, welcome to the Public CEO Report. Thanks very much. Thanks for being with us. Well, uh, first of all, old friends of mine, I've had the pleasure of knowing both of you guys for over a decade now, and you're both uh, work in the space of water, something that is near and dear to my heart, and frankly should be near and dear to every human being, given how significant it is. I often chat with my wife about real estate and water policy, and I note to her that the value of real of land with no water is zero. <laughs> so uh, you got to have water. And uh, you two gentlemen have been in the space for a long time with a lot of great thoughts. So I was excited to welcome you today to this conversation. Also, because uh, it is now roughly the end of November as we record this, we, from everything I've read, are staring down the barrel of another significant drought potentially in the state of California and its implications on other policy areas. And it also seemed appropriate to have a conversation with the two of you. So. For the benefit of our audience, um, why don't I ask you to each to introduce yourselves real quick and what your history is working in the water policy area and your current role. Um, Jim Leach, why don't we go ahead and start with you first? Sure. Um, you've already introduced me as uh, in, by my title, but I can tell you I've been in uh, been in the water sector for about a decade. I had a long career in telecommunications uh, before that, but um, I've spent the last uh, the last 10 years working at Santa Margarita and uh, Interestingly, that you know, we I, I got a couple of years reprieve before the first drought, uh, and then I got a nice uh, a nice dose of uh, a four year five year uh, drought to work through and and to meet some uh, regulatory requirements. Uh, so I feel like I I feel like I've been around the block. Charlie's been on been around a lot longer, but um, but I got a nice uh, I've gotten a nice intro to to water and all the things that can happen. And for the benefit of our audience, where is Santa Margarita Water District and how big is it? And where are you within the array of retailers versus wholesalers and whatnot? We've got about we've got about 200,000 um, 200, customers down in South Orange County. Uh, we run roughly from, uh, we, we serve all of Rancho Santa Margarita, about two thirds of Mission Viejo. And then the Rancho Mission Viejo communities, uh, Ladera Ranch, Las Flores, uh, we own just a little piece of San Clemente in the Talega area, and we just recently um, acquired the city of San Juan Capistrano as water utility. So uh, we've grown a little bit, and we have additional growth to go uh, with the additional uh, homes that will be put onto the ranch, ranch, uh, Mission Viejo Ranch down in that vicinity. A lot of, lot of growth down there in South Indeed. Orange County. You guys yes. have kind of enabled that growth, because without the water, there would be no growth. That's, uh, that's the way we look at it. Yeah. Uh, and Charlie Wilson, so you're uh, at the risk of stealing your thunder. You're a former board member of the Santa Margarita Water District, yeah. if I recall correctly, and I've been around local government politics a long time and local government policy. So a little bit of your background going back to your utility days, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, I started my career in the state legislature doing government work, uh, I mean, communications and, and policy. Uh, I spent about 26 years working in the electric utility industry. So I kind of got that infrastructure into my blood. And then somewhere along the line, as you indicated, I committed Harry Carey and volunteered my service as an elected official in Santa Margarita Water District. And I served there um, about 19 years as a member of their board of directors. And uh, 2016, I actually took over the Southern California Water Coalition, where I had served as a board member. Lesson to you, you served long enough as a board member, eventually they, they put you to work. <laughs> uh, and so now I get to serve as the uh, executive director and, and CEO uh, for an organization that runs from Kern County to the north, uh, south to the Mexican border, and as far east as the state line. That's the big area with millions and millions of people. Well, it's about 25 million of California's 40 million people. So literally, we have the population. Uh, but as you say, it's big, it's diverse. That's the good news. And it's big and diverse, which is the bad news, trying to help uh, bring all those that diversity into a single focus on policy. And what is the policy goal of the Water Coalition, the Southern California Water Coalition, I should, I should be? Well, talking. it was formed 26 years ago based on a ballot initiative. And without the long story, it was a, a realization that Southern Californians really didn't know where their water came from. And if you don't know about your water and where it comes from, 
when you're asked to vote on issues, how can you make an informed choice? So our mission is to first educate, and I like to say we educate to advocate. So as people understand where their water comes from, how it gets to them, uh, why it's an important commodity, and, and then the policy issues that come with it, they'll advocate in their own special interest. Makes sense. So in the spirit of that education, uh, let's talk at the macro level first about where our water comes from in Southern California. And then Jim, we'll turn to you to talk about where your water comes from right to Santa Margarita. Charlie, where, and generally in Southern California, where do we get our water from? Well, it depends if I'm doing my public polling, which we did a few years ago, and I actually asked people, you know, where, where does your water come from? And they'd point to their sink. <laughs> and then I'd ask them the second question, where's the Sacramento Bay Delta? Because that's where we know a big chunk of water comes from for the state water project. And they pointed to their Delta faucet on the sink. Uh, so we knew then we kind of had a fairly heavy lift with the general public and some education. Uh, but that's a long way of saying that the way Southern California actually receives its water, is that roughly 30% comes from the state water project, means it comes from the Sacramento region, where the rivers come together, Bay Delta area. Uh, back in the 60s, that system was built specifically to bring water to Southern California. And that's about 30% of the supply we use in that broad Southern California geography. Uh, the other major straw, if you will, is the Colorado River Aqueduct, which comes in from Nevada. Uh, that again is a fairly healthy percentage, about 20% of what we use. And then the rest of what we have would be local supplies, local groundwater supplies, uh, which then creates that matrix uh, that we kind of use depending on the hydrology, depending on the wetness of the year, we use one over the other in a more dominant way. So basically it's almost half our water supply or half our water supply is being imported from somewhere else. It, it is imported from someplace else in some cases, several hundred miles, if not further away. Yeah. Uh, and then as you start reading about issues like the Colorado River and what's going on there, impacts on climate change, what's going on in Sacramento, it certainly puts pressure on those systems. And there's obviously some other issues about modernizing those systems and becoming sort of state of the art. And then we focus locally on what can we do locally to sort of reuse or regenerate or how do we utilize what we have locally to its best advantage. Yeah, to create some local resilience and independence, frankly, from those outside independencies. Yeah. Well, it is in that resilience. It's a great sort of nexus, right? Because a lot of people like to talk about the one place where it comes from. But if you're talking about resiliency, that's more than just reliable. It's what happens when something goes wrong. What happens when it's a really dry year? What happens if we have an earthquake? What happens if you know something happens locally with uh, groundwater quality like we've had with PFAS? I mean, those are the kinds of things where it gets really messy really quick. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk about the locality though. So Jim, uh, yes. Ranger Santa Margarita, 200,000 customers, South Orange County. I know South Orange County to be a relatively, especially in some of those areas out there on the, once you get away from the ocean, particularly dry areas in the scheme of things, where does where do you get your water from? Our water comes from those sources that Charlie just talked about. We, uh, our supplier is the Municipal Water District of Orange County, who is a member agency of the Metropolitan Water District, which does the importing. Um, and they've, we sort of rely on the on them entirely, and we and we say that they've been reliable. Uh, and they will continue to be reliable until they're not, until something happens. Um, because as Charlie pointed out, water comes from several hundred miles away. And, uh, and, and many of those, those uh, conveyances are in harm's way from uh, seismic events and elsewhere. So uh, what we're about, and I think Charlie may have touched on it, is um, finding ways to, to create local sources that are locally controlled. And uh, we have invested, in fact, Charlie's uh, in his tenure as one of our board members, was very instrumental in helping us invest in local storage, uh, local uh, recycling uh, facilities. And, um, and so we, we, in fact, we just recently completed um, the Trampas Canyon Reservoir, a 5,000 acre foot uh, seasonal storage reservoir for, for recycled water, uh, because we can, uh, we can use that water and, and not have to use potable water for all the irrigation that we need because we don't have local supplies uh, under uh, groundwater or surface water. And um, we have uh, we have a, a program that we're working on right now that ultimately will will allow us. We do have a basin. There's a the San Juan Basin, 
that uh, lies underneath a good portion of our of our system. Uh, it's a it's they, they call it an impaired basin because it's not it's not just a big bowl. Uh, it actually flows. It's an underground flowing stream, but it has places where water can be stored and water can be pumped. And, uh, and so as a consequence, we're we're looking at ways that we can introduce recycled water into that basin uh, and ultimately pump that back out and treat it and uh, and and supplement our our uh, potable supply. So it's a long term plan. Um, the investments are are being made. The investments are on the table and uh, we're pretty excited about the prospect of it. It'll it's going to take a while, but it doesn't seem to be taking as long as some of the some of the other programs that might be coming out of uh, out of Sacramento. And uh, you were talking about the the various sources uh, from elsewhere. Um, our particular allocation for for our portion of of what we get from the state water project is very limited this year, and it's been limited for some time. And uh, and the same goes this year with uh, with the, the Colorado River. That that is another. Uh, there's impairments over there, and there there have been cutbacks over there. So we're sort of, you know, looking for ways to ultimately in the short term, uh, reduce our reduce our demand, but at the same time, uh, set ourselves up to be able to, to provide potable water to our customers that we control and that uh, and that we help develop. Mm-hmm. You talked about demand. I'd be curious for either of you to comment on this. My perception is that after the last drought, there was some pretty significant cutbacks that were requested of customers and pricing adjustments were made in part um, to address reduced use, yet still needing to pay for infrastructure. So we had rate changes. Um, but ultimately, it's not clear to me that we ever like finished the drought and said, OK, everybody go crazy, start using up your water again. So I get the sense that we're still using relatively less water than we were using per household or per person than we were, say, five or 10 years ago. Is that an accurate perception? And kind of where are we with the efficiency from an efficiency perspective relative to our peers throughout California or just in general in America? If you guys have some thoughts on that. Well, that's one of the issues we get to address a lot. And actually over the last 25 years, not just this recent cycle, uh, but we've actually doubled the population in Southern California and we're using the same amount of water. So the issue of water conservation, the issue of water use efficiency it's really become ingrained as part of the everyday life, at least for water agencies and how they serve the customers. Um, and that's through things like, you know, efficiencies in showers and toilets and, you know, drip irrigation, that kind of stuff. We can always do better. And that's kind of what the state's looking at now. So as we go through these dry cycles and the argument is being made, are we going into another drought or is this just an extension of the previous drought and we just happen to have a wet year? The forecast for the future is we're going to have drier and drier years. And when we get precipitation, it's going to come in the form of rain, not so much in snow, which means it comes faster. And so how do you use, how do you store, how do you utilize that system to its maximum advantage between local and import? And then how do you ingrain further into people's minds how they can continue to improve? And one of the areas I think we found great success is that when you do get into areas, as you indicated, like this year, we're in another dry year. We cut back 24% two years ago. And now we're being asked for a voluntary 50% now. Well, it's not 15% because we never bounced back. So it's really, you know, more 35, 39, 40% cutback from where we were back in, say, 2016. Mm -hmm. And every time we go through a dry cycle, it does get more and more difficult because you're beginning to squeeze that elasticity because it never comes back. And the intent is for it to come back. How do we become most efficient, just like you get from the Edison company or the gas company? How can you use that product as efficiently as humanly possible? And how can we recycle and reuse over and over again? Yep. Well, I would, I would just add that um, you know, it's in the category of no good deed goes unpunished, um, we we did precisely what what Charlie suggested that that we we did not see um, irrigation coming back from from the homeowner associations. We converted many of them to recycled water, taking them off the potable water to begin with. Um, we had a, any number of of homeowners and and areas that uh, that did take steps to uh, to make their their landscaping more drought tolerant. But one of the things that we have going it's it's a good thing for us is the growth. But what we find in the in the new development down in Rancho Mission Viejo is, or yeah, is uh, that those homes are are coming fully loaded with uh, with drought tolerant, 
with California Friendly. And so they're using uh, percentages less than the people in Rancho Santa Margarita who are 20 years old now. So, I mean, it's, it's an interesting problem. Um, but to Charlie's point, the, the piling on of additional requirements and additional cutbacks suggesting that that you know okay well you drop you drop 24% it bounced back to a 24% so now you're going we want to get you a 15 doesn't work doesn't work that way as he just suggested and um, and we've also got this issue of new homes of which there's going to be thousands that are not going to be using the same level of water anyway so going in and asking them you you're not going to get the kind of cutbacks that that the that the state mm-hmm. believes they want to take by telling people to turn off the water when they brush their teeth um, so it's a it's a conundrum, and we don't know exactly how we're gonna how we're gonna deal with it, uh, other than how we're dealing with it, which is education and uh, bringing people along to understand what's going on, and working with our the regulators and the and the legislators on understanding the real situation on the ground. It's happening right now in uh, at the Department of Water Resources. They're looking at the outdoor water water use standards, and uh, and we're wrestling with them over. Over the data that they're using to to calculate the water use standards, the current water use, uh, and all of the elements of that, to um, to try and suggest that we we know what we're using, we're happy to tell you what we're using. Here's where we were. Here's where we are. Here are the steps we're taking. Don't don't set a standard that we that we automatically can't reach because we reached it three years ago, five years ago. Right. It's uh, it's a, it's an ongoing battle. Well, and, and Jim, the analogy you just had me think of as you were going through that, and Ryder, it, it kind of like you buying your new electric vehicle today, and then the state coming back next year and saying, well, I need you to reduce your gas consumption by 25%. Yeah. You know, you've already done everything you can do. Right. And so, you know, the, the, the issue then is how do you get to those who have older vehicles, older homes yeah. that have not been able to make those kinds of efficiencies that new home, new housing product has? And that's a very difficult transition but every agency kind of goes through it on their own, whether it's pricing, education. In some cases, they do punitive measures. Uh, I have found, and as an organization, we have found that if you give constituents the message of what it is you want me to do, what is the urgency, why is it so, but then give me the instruction, what can I do personally about it? And then let me go do that when we have really dry periods like a drought they'll act and and that you know it, it seems like that's a better way to get about it than the, the punitive measures but that doesn't eliminate your need to create new source and to create greater efficiencies in the system yeah yeah and i just i just add on to that that's that that's the reason we were successful at santa margarita uh, during the last drought is that we we invested heavily in in education told what the goal was I mean, we'd sort of made it into a into a contest we had that if you've ever seen the the fundraising goals for people and they'll have a thermometer or something and they'll put the well we, ours was coming down the usage was coming down and we plastered those around the around the service area and we we gave people a lot of uh, of information and, and told them what was needed to be done and we we instituted uh, some assistance on uh, landscaping uh, we have a landscape architect on staff that that helps uh, individual homeowners put together programs and 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 designs for their particular situation a lot of people took uh, took advantage of it we rewarded that with uh, with um, with uh, recognition uh, and uh, it, it it worked out very very well it was uh, if you're cynical at all about people doing what you ask them to do if you tell them what they're good what you need them to do you'd be wrong because the folks responded to that and we made our goal and and then and then most of the much of it anyway was uh, was gone they didn't come back when the when the drought was over uh, so we didn't have to declare victory, and then everybody went back to their former habits. Right. Well, I think, Jim, as you said, it's not about flushing toilets and taking showers, the indoor right. stuff. It's purely about what people do in their yards. Yep. And as people make that transition to drought-tolerant landscaping, that's why a lot of people are offering rebates as incentives to so get people to act. You know, what's the right stimulus to help people kind of make that, that, that change? Um, and then we do get to that place where I hear from a lot of folks. You know, we live in Southern California. It's an arid region. It's a desert region. But we did establish at one point, you know, landscaping as if we were still living in Connecticut. <laughs> you just can't grow those things in a drought area of water. So there is a mindset and some shift 
And there's a lot of people that kind of got themselves into that idealistic community in their yard and helping to transition them through education as to what does a really nice yard look like that is more drought tolerant, California native kind of thing. You can do some absolutely gorgeous, beautiful things. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Well, so a couple things that I would just emphasize from what I've heard. Uh, first of all, Charlie, early on in your comments, you made note about the fact that uh, not only is there projections for expected drier weather, but less snow. And one of the things that was kind of an epiphany for me in the last 15 years of working in local government was the appreciation for just how much snowpack is a reservoir, right? It's the, it was, it has been the largest storage mechanism for water supply in California was the snowpack. Uh, and the nice thing there is it melts off slowly but surely, and it gives you a consistent river flow, which allows you to capture the water and yada, yada, yada. So less snow means less reservoir, which means your ability to modulate between the highs and lows of the seasonality of water is reduced as a result of that. Um, so an important point to just emphasize from your comments. Second uh, is this idea that um, people most residential units, the vast majority of their water use is outside the house, right. the landscaping in particular. It's not having to do with the shower or flushing of a toilet or running of a dishwasher or drinking water and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, running running their clothing uh, through the washing machine. So, um, hence, a lot of the policies focused on artificial turf and replacing uh, with drought tolerant plants and things like that. So, as our communities think about these things. And Jim, you noted really interestingly how the newest housing that's being built is built around this drought, drought mm -hmm. tolerant backyards. Uh, they're essentially creating that better solution for housing where it's less water imp impacting and less water demanding while still at the same time recognizing that people need to flush toilets and wash their hands right. and do all the things that you're supposed to do inside your house. So I would assume, though, that at some point there's diminishing returns. I mean, you can only cut back so much, right? Once once you've ripped out all the lawns, once you've once you've ripped out, you know, and put in olive trees and done all the things to try to try to uh, mitigate that, um, there's only so much you can do. I guess the other interesting point I should just raise also is um, a water recycling purple pipe, as we sometimes refer to it in the industry, is this idea of taking. Uh, water uh, effluent and treating it and recapturing it and getting it to a state where it can at least be used to irrigate plants and things along those lines. So that's becoming something we see a lot of uh, in water districts here in Orange County. And we're seeing more and more kind of uh, get into that. And obviously Rancho Santa Margarita has gotten into that, um, which is great because at least addresses the big source of use, which is mm -hmm. irrigation of plants and landscaping, right? I guess one question I have is how much of that purple pipe has actually made it to residential units as opposed to public facilities and public parkways and, and whatnot. Like is Talega or the new stuff being built down in the mission area there in your footprint, is that, does that a purple pipe to the house? No, no, it doesn't. Um, and uh, we have one place, uh, one, one development in our, in our service area, uh, retirement community um, uh, that does in fact, because their, their irrigation was set up, the HOA was set up to irrigate everything. The public spaces as well as as the individual the individual yards and of course they the, the yards aren't huge but um but we we found that we got the single biggest bang for the buck during the last drought uh out of converting irrigation systems from hoas and golf courses and others uh, municipalities is an example with uh, as you were saying with with medians and that sort of thing we got the biggest bang by taking them off the table and getting them on recycled water uh, and and that's a good portion of what of what has not come back is that I mean we've we've now converted all these irrigation systems. Sure. So um, what we did last time, um, our goal I think Charlie mentioned it was 24 percent. We had to cut back 24 percent. Uh, so we did a rough calculation that 50 percent of your of your water use is on your landscaping. So if you cut back 50 percent on your landscaping, you're at 24 percent. We win. Um, and we did that. I mean we got to that point. Uh, by uh, our water use efficiency manager um, doing some extraordinary communications uh, activities to help people understand that maybe they're overwatering. And we offered uh, a number of, of things like uh, smart timers and smart uh, irrigation controllers uh, and all of the, the fixtures and things that go with that. I mean, you get down in some pretty nitty gritty detail around what a person can do in their yard if they want to keep their grass. Uh, and, uh, 
and that helped. I mean, I can't tell you the percentage that 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 uh, that that cut back, but it was certainly additive to what we were getting from the other from the from the control or the um, conversions we were doing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so it just presents a conundrum for us at this point as to uh, we can make that same point. We can still make the point to to the homeowner. Uh, getting back to your point, uh, that you're going to spend you're spending half of your water on your yard. You can probably cut back on, you know, some degree on that. And we provide them with information about seasonal use of their of their irrigation and and how to cut back in the fall when it's cooler and how to, you know, change those dynamics and their habits around that. Uh, but it really is an issue of habit because many people, as, as Charlie said at the very beginning, they think they get their water from the sink or the or from the delta, which is their faucet. Uh, so it's very they're not they don't pay attention. And because water is relatively affordable in the pantheon of of utility charges, um, many people don't really pay attention to what they're spending on it. Sure. And um, uh, so it's it's a constant effort to to um, to raise the profile, to raise consciousness, and then to and then to to con- communicate with them things they can do. And I just call back again to what Charlie said. If you tell them what to, what to do and how to do it, one of the biggest frustrations we've had hearing back from our customers in this time period uh, is, what am I supposed to do? 15%, what am I, how am I gonna cut back 15%? What am I gonna do? And it's either I've already done it or I don't know what to do anyway, if it, even if I hadn't already done it. And, um, and it's, a, it's, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge to help them understand exactly what they need to, what they need to work on. Plus, um, you know, we're not, we're not sure where this is going. We have a good sense that we're going to have a, uh, a long and healthy drought, if you will, uh, which we hope is not true, but we, that's, you know, that's the, that's the, uh, the forecast. So it's, uh, our focus has been on just keeping up the, keeping up the, the drumbeat of communique, keeping up the drumbeat of information, usable, actionable information for, for customers. And, uh, and it's worked for us. So, sure. the, you know, it, it, you know, it strikes me, though, Jim, as you're talking, you know, we're putting all this time, all this effort, and it's useful when you're communicating with individuals and individual homeowners. But if I pull back, Ryder, to your first question about that kind of that big picture, you know, 50% of all the water flows out to the ocean as part of the environment. Yep. Of that 50%, we bring it to Southern California, you bring it into urban centers, you're using what 40% of that water is going to agriculture, which is a critically important commodity job producer. I mean, we feed the world through our agricultural sector. So 40% of the water goes to ag. That means 10% is what's being used on homes. And what Jim just described and all that time, all that effort, all that education for 10% of the total water use, which then is why we then blow it back out to that macro level of what kind of efficiencies can you, should you build into modernizing the state delivery system that eliminates uh, water um, leakage, that creates greater efficiencies so that when we do get rain that comes down, you can move it when it's in its abundance and allow it to flow for environmental reasons when it's not. We haven't done that. You know, we haven't looked at those big, you know, really critical projects like the state water project or the Colorado River. Um, and then you get into what these big local projects, which you can do then, as Jim described, by closing the loop, by creating recycling. And as recycling is more in the future than just irrigation, mm-hmm. it then becomes truly part of the advanced science to make that potable or drinking water that you can then literally have a closed loop system that you then supplement from the outside. So now you have a management structure that is not dependent upon any single source. And then the last piece was, you know, what we also have, which I kind of find interesting, is people overwater. Uh, they call that urban runoff. In the new vernacular, that's stormwater. And so, how do you capture the stormwater to put it to practical, good use purposes, where you can clean it and put it back back into the system? So, the combination of all of those sources, a lot of time, a lot of energy. There is no single silver bullet that just kind of creates a solution to say, hey, we get to walk away. It's all done now. No, but the macro picture you paint is an important one. Um, and I want to go to that for a minute, but I also want to go back and maybe correct something I said earlier and, and bring clarity to it. Because I think, Jim, I heard you say that when we entered the last drought, about half the water use going on in your service area was happening outside the home and half of it was inside the home. Is that what I heard yeah. you say? Uh, yes. 
Okay, so I said it was like a vast majority, but in, at least for your district, it's not actually true. It was about 50-50 between those two. Well, and, yeah, that's that's correct. And I and I, you know, I again, I I think I think I tried to make the point that that's that's a rough guesstimate, but it worked for out for the they gave us a, a roughly a 24-25% reduction. So if roughly you're using 50% of your water on the outside, you cut back 50%, you're at 25%. You're sure. done. So that was, you know, it, it's an inexact science. Okay. Yeah, well, Jim, I, I also recall too, you also did some, you know, big sort of ornamental uses, which I know cities, homeowners associations, others have, yeah. you know, lakes, ponds, things like that. In, in the case of Santa Margarita, while I was still on the board, we went to Lake Mission Viejo, which is an artificial lake filled with drinking water. And every time there was a drought, there was this tension on, do you continue to put water in that lake for fishing and for sailing and that kind of use, that recreational use, or was there a better use? And we were, went through a very elaborate process with the homeowners association to create a recycled use there, a highly treated recycled water use that meets all health standards for fish. And you can still do everything you're doing before for swimming and sailing, everything. But that was a better use for an outdoor ornamental water usage than how it was originally constructed back in the 70s. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I guess um, the one other thing I'd, I'd love to just drill in on the micro before I go to the macro, Charlie, because you raised some really broad points there that I want to weave through with my own language on explaining to the audience. But um, so 50% inside, 50% outside. Fundamentally, you squeeze down, you reduce your outside use by 50%. At some point, you're going to have to start looking to your indoor use. And it just strikes me that as human beings, it's a lot, e it's probably easier to find 50% outside the house than 50% inside the house. Um, because there's a big difference between I'm going to let my dandelion or my, uh, my roses over there wilt or my lawn go brown versus I'm going to get in and out of the shower in, in two minutes, right? Or whatever the case may be. And I don't really know exactly how that translates, but I would just describe like path of least resistance was probably having to do a lot more with outdoor mitigation and reduction than indoor reduction. And if we're going to mm -hmm. face that reality, we're going to have to eat into it at some point if we're going to be successful in further reductions. Um, Charlie, so you talked about the macro level. I want to make sure I just talk about this. You said if we take 100% of the water supply that's generated from what falls from the sky, as I think mm -hmm. what you described, 50% of that flows out to the ocean, right? Which is basically going in the rivers or the washes or whatnot ends up out in the ocean. 50% uh, of that thing is captured and used by people kind to either grow food, which is 40% of that 100%, right. or 10% is irrigate houses and irrigate and provide hand washing and toilet flushing and things like that, right? Is that a rough, did I say that properly? Those are the rough numbers according to the uh, PPIC, yes. Okay, so uh, we're not going to uh, somehow create more rain magically. We can't control that. So now the question is, what do we do to either find efficiency in that either 40% of irrigation related to food production? And which, by the way, aside from liking water a lot, I also like food. So it's not like I really want to stop eating food. <laughs> um, or number two, uh, how do we figure out how to capture more of that 50% that's running off into the ocean, which I assume there's some tension here with various species of fish and other animals that becomes a question. Um, and then this obviously ties in with the, what's sometimes referred to as the Delta solution or the tunnel solution or something along those lines to further enhance and create um, redundancy and, and kind of uh, survivability of our, of our water supply for Northern California, which you already noted is like roughly 30% of the total water supply for Southern California. So I just threw out a bunch of numbers there, but bottom line is we got roughly half going to the ocean, 40% going to food, 10% going to all the housing. And is that Southern California? Is that for the whole state of California? That's for Southern California. Okay, so that's that's within your footprint of the Southern California Water Coalition. Okay, so all that said, um, what's, what's the policy objective? What are some of the things that are, exist out there to either address the 40% on the, on the irrigation food supply side or the 50% that's simply running out of the ocean right now? Well, I like to do a good news, bad news all the time. So the good news is when, when Gavin Newsom became governor, he took a legacy from Jerry Brown, who was very interested, very focused on water infrastructure, mostly family legacy. I mean, he was a historian by all measures. Um, and he was working very diligently on trying to resolve an issue within the, the Sacramento Bay Delta. Newsom, when he came to office, took a, a review or a holistic look 
at how we were managing, how we were um, generating resource around natural resources. So he was including then the environmental piece. So that's the good news. Bad news, right? Again, it's it, it really brings to light all of the different demands for the environment, for ag, for urban use. And I think the part of the policy discussion then is, you know, they all have to work together. You can't just, you know, try to beat each other to death and the whoever stands tall that day happens to win the war and we do little bits of change. So in the context of a water resiliency portfolio, as you described, there's a recognition that the climate is changing. It is getting wetter, heavier, less snowpack. So the question is, rather than looking in a rearview mirror of how we used to do things 20, 30, 40 years ago, what do we need to do 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead? It's one thing for Jim and local water agencies to do education on a dry year or multiple dry years in a drought. That's not when you start planning is when it's dry. You plan when you have money for investment and what is the long-term objective? Just like you do in freeways, just like you do in electrical infrastructure, you know, it's no different in water because by the time you need it, it's too late. And so that's kind of the position we're in now. Other good news, we've had unprecedented funding at the state federal level to be able to put towards water planning, water projects, water development in combination with the environment. The thing that we're still working on though, and I told Jim I might use this analogy at some point and you're old enough to remember it. It's an adage from the old supergroup Sticks back in the eighties, right? You know the song, it's a grand illusion. We got a lot of proclamation, a lot of vision, a lot of where we wanna go and it's all in the state's resiliency portfolio. And what we need now is a good blue collar man to do the work. Who's gonna build the systems? Who's gonna make the decision we're going that way instead of that way? And that's what we're still missing and that's what we're pushing on. In the context of all this complexity, for the first time in my lifetime, we have money to invest in water infrastructure. The question is, where are we gonna put it to maximize its benefit for the greatest whole? And that's the policy issue at the Sacramento level with 40 million people and all that diversity that comes in the legislature. So that, that becomes the real challenge. How do, you, how do you implement the governor's resiliency portfolio? And we're about to find out, you know, in the next year, you look at the state budget, it tells you where they prioritized funding. That tells you where they think money ought to go. That's where you start the conversation. That's where you start working with others and collaborating and partnerships. Because uh, as I said, you just walk in with your body armor on and your sword in hand, thinking you're going to slay you know, some dragon and you're going to stand on the hill and say, I won. That's a guaranteed recipe for failure. So I, I guess I appreciate the idea of action taking place because as a lay person looking at this, it would seem like there's been lots of talk and at the statewide level, not necessarily a lot of action, right? Uh, maybe example would be, I can't remember when the last time was they built a dam in the state and I realized that for some dams are verboten. Not since the 1960s. Yes, right. So it's been a long time. And the when we built the state water project that was built in the 60s, if I recall, too, 60s. Right. Yeah. And then the uh, our straw that goes out to the Colorado River that was built even longer ago, if I recall correctly. So these are major statewide infrastructure projects. Um, and there's been a lot of great local infrastructure projects where it's desalination plants or these reservoirs, for example, that Santa Margarita Water District is talking about. Like we've seen, I've seen innovation at the local level and in some of the regional level stuff. So when will, like what you're, you're saying we should see that in this coming year? Like this is kind of like the year for it to happen. Is that is that what people should start to expect to see when they hear budget reports come out? We talk about the budget plans that are gonna be laid for 22, 23 in the, the city, the state budget. There, there was some significant money last year. Uh, we're already looking at projected, you know, excess revenues again this year, so thirty some billion dollars, which is, again, I, I never thought I'd see uh, excess in state government because never have enough money to go around. Uh, but that level of investment starts it. It does come then with matching funds from people like Santa Margarita and local agencies. But it's about how you then manage the system, and that's the decision you have to make. So we know you have to improve the state water project that has to be modernized. We're working off a, a broken system that water is salting out in the Bay Delta. If the salt water gets to those intakes, whether it's by earthquake or climate change, 
you are pumping salt water. It's worthless. So that has to be fixed. It started, oddly enough, when this, my organization was founded in 1984, it was from a statewide initiative to build a canal, the peripheral canal around the Bay Delta to improve that water delivery. Here we are 36 years later, talking about resolving the same problem. Now we've improved it with tunnels, first two, now one. The question is how big, how often do you operate it? How do you manage it so that when it's really wet, you can move water. When it's dry, you don't need it because you've got storage that you've put it either in the ground or some other new storage place. And as you indicated, the state hasn't built a reservoir in you know, since the 60s. The only major investment in water supply was the Metropolitan Water District when they built Diamond Valley Lake. That's the last. And that was funded by the Metropolitan family of, com of uh, communities, not the state. So the state and the feds really have not invested in any of this infrastructure like they do in streets, roads, and highways. In this particular case, we're gonna to have to kind of take control of ourselves. And that's where the recycling projects come to play in Los Angeles predominantly, because Orange County does a fabulous job with it already. Um, coastal desal is, is frequently you know, thrown out there as a solution. That 30% that we talked about for Southern California, if I put that in context of if we if we built desalination plants along the coast to replace that that 30 percent, that minority share of the state overall water, you would have a ocean desal plant every five miles from Santa Barbara to Mexico. You can't get the volume from coastal local resource development that you get from the state. So you have to fix the state. Then you supplement with the local stuff which is right. more affordable and it fits into that portfolio. Uh, that's a so very interesting number you throw out there. Every five miles having to have a desal plant to uh, replace the supply that comes from the state water project. That's and, a, and that's a desal plant the size of what's currently built in Carlsbad. Okay. There you go, folks. Take that one and put that in your pipe and smoke it, people. <laughs> yeah, so if, if it's controversial to build a new one in uh, Huntington Beach, Let's just replicate that in every city along the coastline from in Santa Barbara to Mexico. Well, as a comms professional, it sounds like a pretty exciting <laughs> prospect for me. <laughs> uh, I, I see a new water specialty field there, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, so I guess that would be the other question then is you we, like what does this manifest in? If we're going to make these investments on a statewide level, you talked about the tunnel solution, and this is a big, long-standing uh, policy proposal that's been out there, predated by the the desire to build an aqueduct that'll go around the entire delta to avoid it. And you know, we, we could spend a two-hour episode just talking about that solution in particular. But what would be some other evidence of these major infrastructure projects? Is it the creation of more reservoirs? Is it? Um, I don't know, what What else can it be? You say yes, yes, and yes. So, I mean, there are projects, uh, Jim can talk about it, in a new water development in a place like Cadiz, mm -hmm. which is uh, an underground water storage opportunity in the desert that is not currently being brought to market. Uh, there are things like Sites Reservoir uh, in Northern California. There's two major reservoirs being discussed in Northern California. Both are running into pretty significant opposition, uh, and they'd be nice to build. Uh, whether you build it north of the delta or south of the delta, you still have to move the water. So you still have to manage it. You got to move it when and where it's available. So you have to do the state water project. You see what's happening on the Colorado River. Uh, those supplies and the, that, that uh, construct is changing. It's going to change some more with Arizona and Nevada and others. Uh, so there's going to be changes that come there. I couldn't tell you exactly what they are, uh, but I can tell you places like Las Vegas are talking about investing in Los Angeles County's recycling project, because for every bit of water that Los Angeles can use out of recycling, that means there's water off of Colorado for Las Vegas. And so they see a benefit. It's no longer you know, just my city, my town versus the guy next door. This is literally Western United States and how it all works together and that plumbing. I mean, even Los Angeles, uh, who is, you know, Mulholland, you know, the history of Mulholland and going out to the, the Sierras and, and Mono Lake and the issues that result from that, that they're still dealing with that. And they'd love to have a closed loop system, but they understand some years they take virtually no water from Metropolitan 
and in really dry years, 60% of their water could come from imported supplies. So you've got to have both. And so work collectively, prioritize, put your funding into it just like you would an investment portfolio. I mean, this is not any different than the states, you know, highways, roads, freeways. Where to get the biggest bang for the buck? Go to it, get the job done, show the public you can accomplish it, and then let's move on to the next one. Because you can't do all of it at one time. It's just overwhelming. Yeah. Uh uh, Jim, I guess I'm curious from your perspective, is there one or two big projects at a retail level for you guys that you would love to see enabled through partnership funds or supporting funds from the state and the feds? Well, the, the things that we're doing um, are are largely paid for through Bureau of Reclamation funds and, and state revolving funds. Uh, our our uh, uh, Trampas Canyon Reservoir is in that category. Uh, and we are in the process. I think I mentioned earlier, but we're doing a lot of uh, a lot of work on the ranch uh, with infiltration basins, building infiltration basins to capture some of the the uh, the runoff that uh, urban runoff that that Charlie spoke of, and and those dollars as well are coming from that. We're looking very carefully at what uh, what's happening uh, at at Met um, and uh, and their their recycling uh, uh, program. So there's we're focused. Um, largely on addressing our our local needs uh we kicked around the the, the term 30 percent we look at 30 percent as being about what people use inside their home so it's a little different than the 50 percent but nevertheless if we can if we can create and uh and store enough potable water whether it comes from uh it's sources we have otherwise or from uh recycled water for 30 percent of our homeowners use in the in the event of a true catastrophe we can keep people whole inside their home and uh, their, their yard may go you know by the wayside but they're not gonna they're not gonna go thirsty they're not gonna go unbathed that sort of thing um but we may we take advantage of of all of the dollars that are available and we've been very successful at uh at garnering those funds and putting them to use uh in in recycling projects and in storage projects and um, and moving down that path. Uh, and just so I'm clear, when you talk about having 30% available to cover indoor use with a projected estimation that household interior use ultimately uses 30%, is that for a one year supply of water? I mean, I remember when they did the the diamond project for for uh, Met, I feel like they they their goal was to have enough storage for six months of total water supply for all of for all of their service area or something like that. It was a pretty big number, anticipating that an earthquake would knock out the the um, our straw into the Colorado River's um, system. So is that the threshold, Jim? Are you guys looking for a one year supply on hand and stored? Yeah, that's basically it. Uh, it's a it, the idea is just to sort of incrementalize this because we can't solve the issues that. Uh, that Charlie discussed, we can, we can, we can, to his point about uh, educating to advocate. Uh, we participate in all of that, and we bring our local experiences and our local perspectives and uh, to to those conversations. Uh, but we're focused on how can we take our situation and and make it work for our customers in the event of whatever happens. Mm -hmm. um, and when uh, we're headed down that path, uh, thankfully, uh, on a local level, we can be a, be a little more nimble than perhaps they are at, uh, at on the state level. So it works for us. Well, and I, and I would share with you, Ryder, as well, the irony with this current dry cycle has really hit the northern part of the state harder than the southern end because of things like Diamond Valley Lake and the efficiencies that Southern California has built into their system. We have not had the same struggle that certain communities when the surface water in places like Marin and some other parts, you know, Sonoma and other parts of Northern California, I mean, they're in a really dire shape because they've got that one supply. And so now they're talking about ocean desal and pipelines and water exchange deals and things that they have not had to really view before. And it's in that that it's interesting that it used to be the North versus South because the rain fell in the North and we were dry in the South. This is really a statewide issue yeah. and we all have the same problem. And so that's where I'm seeing a lot more coalescing around solutions and investment. And then it's just fighting over what dollars are available and what is the most practical, what's the most efficient, what's the most economic uh, solution that we can get at for the constituencies. So you're not you know, pitting one group against another. Yeah, I mean, there's, there is kind of an, 
uh, you know, an old adage or, or perspective of North versus South when it comes to water, right? And the, the claims of like, you darn Southerners keep stealing our water supply from up North. Uh, and I joke about it with my friends from Sacramento and they, you know, they giggle and laugh as all good public policy people should. But it's interesting to hear you saying that at least this current drought is perhaps uh, opening eyes up to the broader reality that maybe cooperation is a better plan to get through through the big statewide challenges that exist. It is actually, it reminds me of a, a debate that I was in a few years ago. There was a legislator from the Bay Area who shall go nameless, um, but in making an argument, uh, she, she argued that she believed that all water should remain where it falls as a matter of state policy. To which I asked her, I said, does that mean then that all tax revenues should remain where they're generated? Oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. No, 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 that's not what I meant. You know, because you have to equitably distribute those resources throughout the state. I said, well, what makes water any different than taxes? Is that that's the kind of policy framework we're trying to bring to the table. And that becomes a new kind of conversation where it's right. beyond that, that um, us versus them. And it's a we conversation about how are we going to accomplish uh, and then including the environmental community and, and environmental needs, because that that also is a critically important piece of California's you know future. Now, how do you make all those systems work? All right, so I want to transition as we will wrap up here in a little bit. I want to transition to a discussion just linkages to housing policy in California, um, both at a macro level and maybe how you're addressing this in the footprint of Rancho Santa Margarita. But just one thing I, I got to get off my chest. So. Uh, I was reading some recent discussions about climate policy and changes in, in America, and one of the observations I had taken away from this reading was that while the West continues to have drier periods, the East continues to get wetter and wetter, and they have an excess water going on and excess flooding going on. So I'm wondering, at what point are we going to build a pipeline from Michigan to California, guys, or at least to, like, Colorado so we can then dump it into the river and have the river convey it down the rest of the way. Is that going to happen, Charlie? Or Jim, are we talking about this idea yet? <laughs> well, I, I will tell you that these ideas are not new. Um, I know of issues uh, and ideas where people were talking in the last drought cycle of uh, running a pipeline from Washington with the Columbia River and bringing it down to California. Um, I know that there are actually um, state mandates in places like Michigan that prohibit Californians from coming in with a pipeline for Great Lake water. So it tells you that we've been down that road before. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and I can tell you that if you want to, you want to really trigger a good water fight, talk about taking somebody else's water and, and you take that North South, you know, California thing and you put it on steroids you know, well, let's head on down to New Orleans and see what it's like taking Mississippi water and run that across. Now, we say that jokingly, but then in, in a real terms, we have a lot of oil and natural gas pipelines, some of which are being abandoned. So the infrastructure actually is there that if you can do water development and you can do it reasonably in the same way we talk about the Sacramento Bay Delta and the Colorado River, then it could make sense and you can make an incentive you know, for communities to be able to share in that resource. Then it's a matter of, you know, if, if this goes, then what do we get back? Like the Las Vegas exchange over recycling water. So there's opportunity there, but that's, that's bigger thinking. And right now it's still very tribal. It's very local. It's very mine, 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 mine. Um, and so let's deal with California's problems, maximize, you know, our investment first. And then we can talk about, you know, running pipelines, Either that or you tell your relatives when they come visit you for Christmas and Thanksgiving, just pack a suitcase full of snow and uh, bring that on back with you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'd like to think we can get back to doing big things in America and solving big problems. And this seems to me like one we could solve. We could try to address, right? We could do, we can build big stuff and uh, make an impact. And if, you know, if part of the exchange is we're going to help develop a bunch of flood mitigation measures in exchange for taking that excess water and routing it out to the West Coast, like, that's probably a decent trade. Somebody's going to want to make that trade. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I'll get my head out of the clouds. I'm going to come back to reality. Let's talk about something else that that for some seems incongruent. And, you know, frankly, at times for me, it, it, it's a little bit inconsistent. Uh, part of my question here is rooted in an, an op-ed I read out of a Bay Area paper from a water policy professional who basically said, 
we have all this work going on at the state level around planning for housing and all this investment that goes into housing uh, projections and the need to build more affordable housing and increasing housing supply. I believe Governor Newsom, when he ran first time around, promised to build 3 million housing units or something along those lines. And um, or maybe it was even 14 million. I can't remember. It was a massive number. I think it was probably 3 million. And, um, and you know, for every housing unit you build, even if it's got super drought efficient uh, plants, like they are building there in the, in the mission uh, project, um, and within the footprint ranch Santa Margarita, it adds more demand, right? Population increase adds more demand. So is there, the claim that was made in this op-ed is there is no linkage between our state housing policy and our water supply policy. Have, would you concur with that observation, Jim and Charlie? And uh, if that is the case, what the heck's going on? Well, I can, I can tell you from the local perspective, um, you know, we're required to provide, uh, to certify that we have water to, pro to, to provide to new homes. That's our, that's our requirement. And because we import most of our water right now, um, we have that. Uh, it, it isn't. It is the situation, I guess, where you where you look at a place where they're where they're relying entirely on an aquifer or or uh, some other some other water source where they have to make that calculation. Uh, because as long as as long as our source is the municipal water district of Orange County coming from the metropolitan water district, we can say that we have those resources and can provide those resources. And that's our that is the limit of our responsibility in that regard, because we hear the same thing about uh, from our local folks they you know they talk about well gee whiz you know you're talking about drought you're talking about uh not having enough water and we need to we need to be careful and we need to conserve and yet you're yet you're enabling all the all the continued building in your in your district uh but it, it's our responsibility to say will you do you have the water available and we do uh now charlie can tell you a little bit more about moving upstream from that so to speak uh and how that looks and, and i'll defer to him for that yeah, I would suggest, Ryder, there's a, a direct nexus between state policy on water and housing. As Jim indicated, it's state law today that if you build 200 units or more, you have to demonstrate a 20-year water supply. Um, so that's been around for a long time. In fact, it was Sheila Keel when she was in the legislature. She was part of getting that passed. Now, beyond that, because you kind of hit those hot buttons for me as well, we have an obligation to build housing in the state of California. The reason it's so expensive and the reason we have some of the issues we've got today is because we have fallen woefully short of building appropriate housing to house our own people. You can do it. Uh, the densities that come with it, the landscaping that comes with it, the new product is not the issue. If we're going to make up efficiencies in the water sector that will allow us to build new housing, we have to address the older housing stock, the older industrial stock. How do we create more efficiencies in that system? There is enough water to do that. It's about how you manage it. It's how you price it. Um, and ultimately, you know, does that mean we're all going to be living in, you know, suburbia, 3,000 square foot homes on, you know, a quarter of an acre with, you know, lush landscaping? Probably going to be asked to make some changes to that landscaping. And you see it already today in, in higher density housing, you know, for those who sit on planning commissioners and what cities are asked to do. Now, there's a, it, it, it's a combination of both but there is a recognition without water, you don't build housing. Now there are those that may want to try to say, Hey, don't build it in my town. Everybody loves it. So long as it's not next to them. Um, but I think the state's doing a better job of saying, no, yeah, no, you're really going to build housing. It's time to build housing. Uh, and I think the, the change in the economy is probably giving you a new opportunity as we watch some of these malls and some of the industrial projects and sort of flipping that over. Now, those are new opportunities for housing development. It's not going to take any new water. In fact, if you had a factory and you built an apartment complex, you'd use less water than if you were using an industrial system. So let me uh, go back and clarify some language that Jim used and then follow up with you, Charlie, with a couple of follow-up questions, perhaps. Uh, Jim, you said that you are responsible for certifying that water is available for housing construction. Is that what I heard you say? Yeah, as and a for service. water agency, <clears throat> pardon me, and for service, as Charlie described, uh, over a twenty-year period. Yeah. Okay. So, but to be clear, what you're saying there, to be more precise, in the language is you're you have a responsibility to see if there is available water supply, and then say yes, we can service you. That's a step in the requirement for development. So it's not that you have a you probably have a legal obligation to certify water is available, so long as you do have another supply, meaning there is ability to import water. Right. 
And theoretically, if there was no ability to import water, let's say there was a catastrophe and they decided to, or the environmentalists said, we're getting rid of the Colorado River supply and we're getting rid of the state water resources project, and those were gone, then you would have to face, or any retail agency would have to face the question of, do we actually have water to supply any new housing units within our footprint? Yeah. And that wouldn't necessarily be a guaranteed sign off that yes, you have to certify. You'd actually have to say, nope, we can't actually provide additional water. Is that the, the reality for water retailers? I think I think so. In the in the <clears throat> pardon me, in the abstract, it's yeah. I mean that those kind of things are probably probably not within the realm of possibility. But that's I the way I see it. Yeah, I mean we're we we have we have supply because we import supply, um, and uh, and and conceivably that's I guess the point is that we. We get accused uh, by people who believe that by constricting water, they'll constrict growth, and and to Charlie's point, constrict constrict construction and the development of new housing. Uh, so we we're called on to respond to that um, to that accusation when someone says, "Oh, well, you're 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 making housing happen because you're giving them water." No, we're responding to our responsibility to ensure that if housing is going to happen and they go through all the processes they have to go through to create that housing, that we're doing our part and saying that we can we can make sure that those people are going to be served as everyone else is. So it's 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 a it's a really interesting situation and uh, and I think to Charlie's point, uh, you know, housing is we got to have it and and we as a as a water district. On the one hand, we feel very blessed to have growth in our system because there's a lot of places in Southern California where there isn't any. Um, sure. But uh, but it's it, it it all boils down to can you provide it? Can you make that once they say once they've got their ducks in a row? How do we respond to that and how do we how do we adjust? Yeah, sure. and as Jim describes, it, the devil's in the details because as an example at Santa Margarita, you know when I still had a little bit of hair left and I first joined the board, uh, we entered into a very creative storage agreement out in the Inland Empire, specifically to assure that those homes that were anticipated to be developed and had been approved in Rancho Bicho Viejo, we had that 20 year supply. So if we needed it, it was there and we paid like an insurance premium. I know of other agencies that are buying um, storage areas, uh, groundwater areas, uh, as agricultural lands are transitioned in their use. So it's not a one for one. You can, you know, do exchange agreements. You can buy bulk water. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get at it. Again, it's about how you manage the system. So, uh, and I guess the the point that I'm hearing is twofold. Number one, I uh, from a from one perspective, you can't artificially say that you lack a supply to then constrict housing construction, right? If the supply is available, you can import then there's an obligation to certify that housing that water supply is available for housing construction. Uh, second point I would just observe is I've worked in areas in California before where there isn't an import option and they have had housing moratoriums on construction because there simply wasn't water supply available. So fundamentally, where areas find themselves without the water supply, they find themselves in a holding pattern until they generate alternative water supplies to help allow for the construction of additional housing units. Um, or into land use conversions that allow them to go from one utilization to another. As you say, if I if I have uh, uh, a water intensive ag use and I fallow those fields because of uh, you know it's more profitable for me to turn that into housing, that housing actually uses far less water than its previous use. Right. right. Yeah. Well, and that's a fair that's a fair uh, point about the conversion of of agricultural lands into essentially housing typically is what you're seeing in a lot of places, right? I mean, that's been the, the explanation of the Inland Empire for many years has been converting of what used to be orchards and cow fields into uh, family subdivisions and things like that. Uh, okay, so, uh, and then Charlie, to your point about the statewide, so your your comment is we have, there actually is a law that says anything over 200 housing units, so we're not really dealing with infill here, but 200 housing units there's an obligation to be able to identify that housing's that water supply requirement, sure. and that uh, that is part of the foundation that exists at a, at a kind of a one-off, one-off project. I guess what I would relate to that is when we talk about building three million housing units in California, does that enter into the discussion about that that 10% of the water supply that gets used in Southern California right now for residential water? Like, do we talk about that and say, okay, well, we're going to add another 
I don't know how many additional housing units that's going to be in the state of California, but that's another, say we're adding another 10% housing supply units in the state of California. Are we going to add another one or 2% to that 10% allocation per residential water supply in Southern California? You would have the same conversation in streets, roads, highways, electricity, natural gas. You know, it all goes into the same mix. If you don't have the physical infrastructure to accommodate the community growth, you can't build a community. So I can no, you know, I can no more build, you know, three million housing units without electric transmission lines than I can without a water system to serve it. Right. So it's the same conversation. They're interrelated. And it's assumed that if you're going to build 3 million housing units plus, then you've got to be able to build the infrastructure to accommodate it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, gentlemen, you've been very generous with your time today. I appreciate you going down uh, all sorts of paths with me. Is there any <laughs> other subject we didn't touch on that you want to try to at least highlight or to note as we move forward? Just how to keep your youthful good looks. You know, for some <laughs> of us, we've aged rather dramatically, Ryder, and I, you know, Whatever you're doing, it's clean living, brother. Well, you know, a, a few extra COVID COVID pounds helps fatten up the cheeks and take away the wrinkles. So that's that's my pro tip for you today. That's kind well, of thanks, you. thanks for having us. Absolutely. No, I appreciate both your insights and experience, gentlemen. It's very helpful for advancing this conversation about what is the most critical resource to the existence of civilization, our ability to build stuff is having actual water supply to keep us hydrated. So yeah, right. In, in seriousness, what I would say is like, hey, help bring bring the cities into the water agencies as part of that conversation. I think there is probably some work we could do there. Counties are very much active as the land use. But as you described with housing in particular, the more we can work closely with the League of Cities, contract cities, which are good coalition partners, uh, but to the extent we can find some new ways to sort of bring things to the state's attention, I think we all benefit. Yeah, uh, I certainly agree with that. I know that in this, in the, with the cities and counties that I work with, I mean, water policy is a constant discussion for them. So I get it. I mean, not only from a budgetary perspective, but a fundamental policy perspective and integrates with their, you know, their housing plans and visions too. So, um, and uh, I guess before, before I close it out here too, uh, Jim, how do people learn more about your water district? What's the website? Uh, www.smwd.com. Awesome. And Charlie, how do people learn more about uh, your organization? SoCalWater.org. That'd be SoCalWater.org. You can find us at SoCalWater.org. <laughs> well done. Nice plug. You guys have any <laughs> books you've written lately that you'd like to plug to? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's today's report. My thanks to Jim and Charlie for joining us. From the whole public CEO team, myself, writer Todd Smith, thank you for your time. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.